Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined straight from the States by Lee Child, the author of the Jack Reacher thrillers, of which the latest one is called Past Tense. Lee, welcome. Start by telling me a little bit about this this new one, because it, it does something that Reacher doesn't all that often do, which is start to investigate his own past. Exactly, yeah. He is usually a guy who's not interested in the past at all. It's all about today for him and, and possibly a little bit of tomorrow. And uh, he never goes back, really, and looks at anything, but he's presented with it. He's wandering as usual, and he s- sees a road sign to a town that he recognizes the name from dusty old documents he's seen as a kid, including his dad's birth certificate. This is where his father was born, allegedly. Reacher has never been there. His dad never really talked about it much. But he's right in the area, so he takes a a detour. He thinks, I'll take a look at where the old guy grew up. Maybe I'll even find his old house. So he heads into town, logically starts at the city records office and says, have you got anything about a family called Reacher? And they investigate and come back and say, no, no family called Reacher ever lived here. So, yeah, we're off and running with one mystery right there. And then you you sort of wind through another one as well. I mean, it's kind of twin track, isn't it? Yeah, and that was just one of those random instinctive things that I do because I don't have a plan, I don't have an outline, I I have no consciousness of the shape of the book or what's going to happen. But in the very first line, I... I mentioned that Reacher has spent the late summer in Maine. And just then I think, oh, Maine, why did I... Oh, Stephen King lives in Maine. Maybe I should do a Stephen King sort of creepy suspense strand here. (laughs) And so that's where the other story strand came from, just just a whim, just let's see if we can build some sinister Stephen King-type suspense into something. And I love working like that because... It's so spontaneous, so organic. It's insecure. It's a bit of a high-wire actor. You're always worried without a road map or an outline. You, you have no reassurance or guarantee that you're ever going to get to the end of the book. But I, in general, it's a huge benefit because you can just do what you want. And so I introduced this young, hapless, hopeless Canadian couple. And they, they took over the book. You know, they just ran with it. That story just went on and on, and I liked them, and they were doing really, really well. I suppose in the back of my mind, I thought Reacher would step in and intervene, which he does at the very end, but I guess I would have thought he would have come earlier. But they, they were doing fine on their own, these Canadians. They were developing and looking after themselves and being quite resourceful. So Reacher wasn't really needed until pretty late. Yeah, but he always he always has to always sort of has to be there. He's kind of in the center of. Yeah, because I actually I figured that would be a second sort of suspense strand. When is Reacher going to get involved? Because obviously there's an implicit promise to the reader that Reacher is going to show up and deal with this. And so I think it was it was also very suspenseful, just waiting for him to do that. Yeah. Now the character Reacher. I mean, there's one of the things that I was always struck me and puzzled me and intrigued me about your books is that Reacher is as near as damn it invincible, isn't he? You mm-hmm. know, he's this. You know, five people, six people, seven people start a fight with Reacher, and you always know who's going to win the fight. Is that a problem for tension in the novel? Well, yes, it is. Uh, you, you know, there's a fundamental overarching problem with tension in that this is a series that people expect to run on and on, and therefore you can figure out at the beginning of the book, obviously, he's going to survive because he's going to be back next year. And so that's Leach's tension to a certain extent. We kind of know he's not going to be killed. So 
But it's a convention that you have to use, I think, in this in this genre that the hero will survive. The question is how, really, and under what circumstances. And the un- invulnerability. I was just always obsessed as a kid with David and Goliath, who is the, probably the ultimate conflict paradigm in literature. But I was always on the side of Goliath. I loved Goliath. I didn't like David at all. And I wished Goliath could win. And so I had... I'm writing to... that wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Bible got it wrong. So I thought, what, how would it be if Goliath was the good guy, in fact? And, and we got rid of all that vulnerability and fear in the hero. I thought it would be interesting as a literary device, but also consoling and empowering for the reader. Because what, after all, is the fundamental point of fiction? It surely has to be that we turn to fiction for the satisfactions that we don't get in real life. We, we look at it as comforting and consoling. Our real life is unsatisfactory. Reality is such that, you know, if a crime is committed against you or any other real person, they're never going to find who did it. If your house is broken into... They, they probably won't even show up. And if they do, you'll never get your stuff back. They'll never find the people responsible. If your car is stolen, you'll never see it again. Real life, we live with this sort of buzz of frustration and dissatisfaction. So we turn to fiction for clarity and consolation and closure, really. In a, in a book like the Reacher books, of course you're going to get your car back. Of course they're <laughs> going to find the guy. And, and he's going to get his head staved in the satisfying yeah. way possible. <laughs> exactly. And we find that, I find it a very subtle and sophisticated response from the readers. The book readers in general are, by definition, the most thoughtful, educated, and generally sensitive people among us. And in reality, of course, they believe in due process and protection for both victim and accused and fair trials and so on. Of course, they believe that. But it's sort of boring and frustrating. And, and so they escape into the world of fiction where, yeah, you know, they capture the guy and they bash his head in rather <laughs> than put him on a lo- long and expensive trial where he might get off on a technicality. It was said, I mean, I've, I've seen it written that when well, you wrote the first novel after losing your job mm. and that, you know, you were pissed off and that you sort of put that rage into Reacher. Is there truth in that or is that just sort of Yeah, very much so. Um, on behalf of myself as a, as a, a personal catharsis, but also on behalf of everybody else that was in the same situation. You know, I did lose my job in the 90s in, in those years of industrial reorganization, but it obviously wasn't just me. It was in my, in Granada, it was two, three hundred people. In ITV as a whole, it was thousands of people. In, in the country as a whole in the world, it was millions of people were losing their jobs at that time. And they still are. And so I wanted Richard to be a consolation for them. Here's a guy who's also lost his job, but he doesn't care. He just gets on with his life and has a perfectly happy time. Yeah. Why did, why did you send your Goliath to the States? Simply because this is fundamentally a very ancient character, the knight errant, the mysterious stranger, the noble loner who shows up and deals with whatever needs dealing with. And that particular character roaming, isolated, somewhat unknown, somewhat unexplained, can only exist where there is open territory, frontier field, danger lurking. So you find this character in Europe, but in the Middle Ages, where 
you know, the Black Forest was a vast uncharted space and, and a lot of stories took place there of the knight errant saving people. But then as Europe became civilized, more densely populated, settled down, calmed down, that character was essentially forced out. It was pushed away to where there is a frontier, which was principally America. You could argue that Australia has a very similar literary tradition with this character yeah. because of its spaces. But also it, Ned Kelly is a... Yeah, Kelly, yeah. You know, anywhere where there is infinite space and the possibility of danger, this character will show up. And so Reacher had to be in America simply for the the immensitude of it. You know, the second book, for instance, he's he's captured or kidnapped in Chicago and thrown in a truck and driven 2,000 miles to a remote Rocky Mountain hideout. Well, that's possible in the U.S. It's really not possible here. If you were kidnapped where I lived and driven 2,000 miles, you're in Algeria. You know, it's, it's a whole <laughs> different sort of storytelling. Story Banging him up in a bungalow in Peebles wouldn't have yeah. the same kind of glamour, would it? Yeah. Now, you're consciously working with an archetype. So does Reacher, I mean, as you see it, does he sort of change? Has he changed and developed over the course of the novels in the way that you might expect a character to, or is part of the point that he stays the same? I've tried very hard not to change him because I think the nature of a series, the nature of popular literature like this is people want familiarity, they want comfort. Of course they want a different story every time in terms of the detail of the plot, but fundamentally they want it to be the same. So I try very hard to keep him the same, but then that's a circular argument because obviously now, 23 years later, I'm a different person. I'm we're all different every year, so it's not quite possible to keep it the same. So he changes, but only reluctantly. You know, I, I, I wish he wouldn't. Does he ever say or think anything with which you'd strongly disagree? I mean, I'm interested in how the extent to which you incarnate yourself in him. That's a good question, because I think all of us, all of us make the main character pretty much autobiographical in a lot of ways, <laughs> partly as, a, as just a, a conceit, but also because it's what we know. Um, so, no, I don't, think, I, I don't think Reacher has any, for instance, political opinions that I don't have or, or tastes that I don't have. Yeah, part of, the, part of the thing of... I mean, he doesn't actually produce all that many political opinions. It's not... I mean, I know the, the novel before this one, I think it was, you know, took in the opioid crisis... Mm. But that seemed to be a bit of a departure. For the most time, you seem to keep them clear of current events and of current issues. I do, because that ultimately becomes a weight around your neck. You know, if every year you've got to rip something from the headlines and write about it, I think that becomes too confining. So it was last year with the Midnight Line and the opioid crisis, which is a huge problem. I, it, was, it was rare that I would intersect with that. But I, I did that because I thought that the... The question, the most important question was not being asked, which was that we will never solve that problem until we admit that for a lot of these people, an opium high is literally the best they have ever felt in their life. You know, sadly, it is a wonderful thing to be high on an opioid. And people that have had otherwise miserable, hard scrabble lives, it is just transcendent in its joy. And until we face you sound that, like you fact, speak from experience. <laughs> <laughs> until we face that, we're never going to solve the problem. And that was the point I was trying to make in that book. It feels great, and until we we tackle that, we'll never get to the bottom of it. 
But it's rare that I do something ripped from the headlines, and, and past tense is far more typical for me, which is a small story, to be honest. It's a guy looking for traces of his dad, and it's two people trapped in a, in a motel. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things, your, your titles are often quite general. Is that a sort of deliberate decision? You know, that we call things like past tense or the midnight line, that's sort of slightly elliptical. And I mean, I, I say this as a great fan. I can almost never remember the title of any given one of your books, all of which I've read. I'll, I'll be like, it was the one with the X or the one with the Y. Absolutely, and I'm exactly the same. I don't remember them by the title at all. I, I, it's the one with. Like we used to refer to Friends episodes 30 <laughs> years ago, the one with. That is how I remember them too. And titles are just incredibly difficult. To, you know, to do a sequence of 23 titles, all of which are good, is unlikely. So, yeah, to an extent, they're fairly anodyne, and they don't mean all that much, I guess, but it, it's just a way of somebody asking for the book, ultimately. And uh, do you... I mean, I'm interested in... And I think I'm sure many people who have read these kind of quite detailed plots you often come up with, quite sort of this idea that you simply see what's going to happen next with the process. I mean, does that mean, that, as it were, the germ for a book? Because you do them very regularly, don't you? Mm. You start writing on exactly the same day each year. Do you just sort of pluck it from the air then and go, this is a scene or this is a situation, and write the first sentence and let it follow from there? Yeah, exactly. I, I just have an idea for an opening that will capture some kind of a mood or some kind of a prediction. Like in this one, the mood is somewhat elegiac. It's the end of summer, winter is approaching, so he's heading south. And I just take it from there. And it, it's a completely organic process, and I find it... It's a slight illusion, to be honest. I mean, imagine, imagine this, that if you spill some ink on a piece of paper, it's just a, an ugly blot. And then, but then if you've got a, a mirror from your handbag or whatever, and you place the mirror against the blot, then it becomes this rather beautiful symmetrical shape. So what I tend to do is, in the, in the beginning of the book, the first half, maybe the first two-thirds, just write, you know, this happens, that happens, whatever it is, randomly, here and there. And then at some point you take stock and you say, all right, this is what I've got. This is what has happened so far. How do we make sense of this towards the end of the book? And that's like placing the mirror on the blot so that then the book looks like it has been planned. And it really hasn't. I was going to say, there's one thing in this book which I... I don't know whether it's a loose end or a teaser, and I don't want to give away any spoilers, of course, but there's, there's a meeting with an ornithologist that looks like it's going to happen and looks like it's going to mean something and then just sort of gets cancelled on the last couple of pages. Yeah, that is actually the downside of writing the way that, that I write, which was that there's a lot, of, I mean, weirdly for a Reacher book, there's a lot about bird watching in it. <laughs> So the ornithologist at one point looked like he might be able to contribute something, but then when it came to it, he really didn't. So partly to characterize Reacher, he has been somewhat, he's found out en enough about his father, he doesn't want to find out anymore, so he's quite happy just to turn his back and walk away, which partly characterizes him, leaves the ornithologist hanging. But really it was just that I, at that point there was nothing for the ornithologist to add. <laughs> also, can I ask briefly about you know, sort of Reacher and women, because he is a very, you know, he has sex, he has relationships, he has a very sort of love him and leave him relationship or, or way of being, but in a very different way than characters like sort of James Bond or something. Yeah, I certainly hope so. You know, the James Bond type of thing, and even one of, one of my personal favourites, the Travis McGee series by John D. MacDonald, 
you look back on them and the gender relationships are just toe-curlingly embarrassing. You know, very much a product of the 50s and 60s and written in a way that, or imagined in a way that we find just completely grotesque now. So, I, you know, reach your... I, I, I sort of take issue with the love them and leave them thing because it's usually the other way around. You know, Reacher is, I think the key dynamic inside of Reacher is he loves his solitude. He very much needs solitude, but simultaneously worries about being lonely. So he is very attracted to strong, confident women. He would love to have a long relationship with one of them. But the problem is the, the stronger and smarter the woman is, the quicker she realizes that, yeah, this is going to be great for 24 hours or 48 hours, but after that there's no future in it whatsoever. So generally speaking, it's the woman that leaves, leaving him alone. And I think as long... I write women, the women I know, you know, and women are smart and strong, stronger than us almost all the time, yeah. certainly more sensible and pragmatic. You don't just have a male readership either, do you? I mean, you have a... I have a huge female readership, and that is partly natural because I think... Fiction generally is consumed more by women than men. It's one of the things that really frustrates us, that the kind of man who who has the literacy and the income to buy lots of books stay away from fiction. I don't know why. Presumably because they they think somehow unworthy and they're much better off reading about a dead president than, than a, a current novel. They're very hard to reach. So I have, everybody has more women readers than men. And I think that in my case, probably I got more than my share. Yeah. I mean, you do have, you know, more than your share of readers full stop, or, or perhaps your deserved <laughs> share. But I mean, I, it's, it's statistic I've heard is that you sell a book every nine seconds, which means that in the course of this podcast, you'll have sold more books probably than I'm going to sell in a year, oh. which I say without much Jealousy, but to reframe that, what is it do you think that you're doing right? Are you kind of conscious of something that you're doing that works and why it works? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hidden undercarriage to it. I think that, I, and I certainly hope readers don't know about this because they, they shouldn't, but a lot of effort goes into the propulsive sprung rhythms of, of the sentence and, and the paragraph and the page so that the reader is constantly being tipped forward in terms of acceleration and velocity because one of the things that you you've got to accept when you when you write a series that you you hope to be popular what does popular actually mean it means that it's not just a large agglomeration of, of readers that there are different types of readers it's like the the rings of saturn in the center you've got habitual readers who read a lot and read fast and it's their instinctive way of passing their time and you've got to satisfy them the, the expert readers and then as you move out to the periphery of the audience you you find the people that read one book a year when they go on their summer holiday and you can see them in the airport it's almost a distress purchase they think oh I've got to buy a book and so they'll They'll buy one and they'll read it. And, and the compliments that you get from that type of reader are very illustrative. They'll, I've heard over and over again people say to me, I loved that book. I finished it. And that makes them feel so good about themselves. They've completed a book, maybe for the first time in decades. And it, it empowers them and they love the book for helping them. So you've got to have a style that 
is somewhat attractive to the expert readers who know what style is, but uh, you've got to use that style to help the less expert readers push through the book. And if I should ask, I just wonder, are you ever tempted in the way that Stephen King was when he'd reached the position that, well, as you're in, where, you know, as he said, I could publish my laundry list and Doubleday would print, you know, 500,000 copies of it. He started to get a sort of slight, not crisis of confidence, but a sense of, what if I tried again and started publishing under the pseudonym of Richard Bartman? Have you mm. ever had that impulse to go, you know what, I, you know, let's... let's I, I haven't because I know what would happen, you know. Publishing is, is, was always uncertain. And people that are starting out now, you know, let's say I made up a pseudonym as, as if I was a first-time writer, they, they're in a very bad position compared to what I was in when I started in the late 90s. Although having said that, I, I absolutely remember in, in the late 90s, you know, talking 97 when my first book came out, I, I was talking to other authors and, and the older ones were saying, oh man, I'm glad I started when I started. And if you go back further, you'll find people who say, oh, I'm glad I started when I started. It was, you know, it's always bad news. But it really seriously is now. I think that the, my career, if you look back on it, everybody compresses the chronology a little bit and think, oh, yeah, instant smash hit. And it absolutely was not. It was a long build over the first six to eight years before I even remotely became a household name. And the question you've got to ask now is, would, would I be supported over the first six to eight years in the way that I was? And, and possibly not, because things, timelines have gotten shorter, horizons have gotten shorter. And you can see this with Robert Galbraith. You know, Robert Galbraith published a crime novel that was real satisfactory. It was a good, solid, competent novel, attractive in many ways. The author clearly in love with language. Very satisfactory book indeed. And it sold nothing. Yeah. 1,200 copies. Ask, did you get sent it to blurb? Because you're a very generous and prolific I did blurber. Not, I did not, as a matter of fact. But I did read it before the revelation. And I... I knew it was a woman writer writing as a man because the style was feminine and also there was one detail very early in the book that could only have been written by a woman pretending to be a man, which was when Cormoran Strike is in the pub and goes in the, in the toilet and commented on the smell. Well, no man ever would go into a pub toilet and notice the smell <laughs> because it's been like that forever. You know, you've known nothing else. But this was clearly a woman writer who stuck her head into the gents in, in order to just see what it's like. And she would notice that because it ain't <laughs> the same yeah. in her bathroom. <laughs> but you didn't rumble her as Joe Rowling. I didn't. I didn't. But I, I was struck by she loves words. I mean, it was clear, clear that she loves words and sentences. And I'm, I've never read much of the Harry Potter, so I couldn't really compare like for like. But, you know, that was a perfect example of, of the starting over thing under a new name. It's very difficult to do. And I don't feel, I sort of already know the answer, so I don't feel like doing the experiment. That's, well, you don't need to. Lee Child, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.